Good morning. Well, hey, if you're new around here, which like half of you are, uh, my name is Stephen. I'm the pastor here. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we're really honored to have you this morning. Uh, and thanks for, uh, I know the line was a little long coming in, and you guys had to sit next to some people that you don't know. Uh, so you guys have been fantastic. Thank you, thank you, thank you. If you are new here today, we do have a gift for you. I'll explain a little bit more later, but we'd love for you to grab one on your way out. I want to give you just a quick story on how we ended up here today. Uh, it was about six months ago. We were in the middle of a series entitled Clear Truth for a Confused World. And we had just decided as a church, uh, we're just going to get clearer and clearer on what is right and what is wrong. And one of the things we've experienced as a church over the last two years is the clearer we are on this is what the Bible says, and this is what the world says, and the world is wrong, and the Bible is right, the more of you that keep showing up. And we know that, um, that, that God is, is moving right now through his truth, which he always does. So I was sitting on my couch in my office, and I was reading a book, and uh, one of our elders' wives, she walked in, and she goes, Stephen, I got this book for you. You have to read it. I said, well, what's it called? She said, Letter to the American Church. I said, Nancy, I'm literally reading it right now, okay? And I was. I was sitting on the couch reading that book. And I said, this is, it's fantastic. It is the call to action, that we need. And it is the call that we had already been feeling as a church, and then Eric has said it so eloquently and now um, so expansively across the nation. And we are so grateful uh, for his boldness and his courage. And so we were in a, in a staff meeting, and we said, wouldn't it be fun if he came to talk? And we're like, eh, it probably wouldn't happen. Uh, so Jamie, uh, one, of our, uh, one of our staff members said, well, I'll send him an email, and we'll see what happens. And so here we are, and that's how we ended up here today, all right? So, without any further ado, Eric, come and join us, please. Thank you. I would never come to this church. Are you crazy? What are you even thinking about? Are we in Monclova? Who hasn't wanted to preach in Monclova? Be honest. I tell you, I am so honored and so blessed to be here that I have to joke because I, uh, I, I am deeply honored. And when I hear things like what you were saying about this book that I wrote, trust me when I tell you, folks, some people won't believe it, but trust me when I tell you, I, the Lord has humbled me up front. I have been through it over the years, and I am so deeply blessed that he would use anything that I would do. That's not false humility. I mean that. I know what I'm saying. And to write a letter... Uh, letter to write a book with the arrogant, preposterous title, Letter to the American Church, right? If you know God, you better be sure that's what God is saying, and that's not what you are saying, because if there's any syllables in there that are from Eric Metaxas, you can put that, you know, that can go to hell. It better be what God is saying. So I wrote this book with a level of humility and fear that is good, because we ought to be about, what is God saying? And I, um, I never in my life uh, felt, I mean, I've written 14 books for adults. I've written 30 books for children. And uh, yeah, it's very impressive, isn't it? <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm just older you know, than you might think. So you know, if, you, if, if you write for a living, it adds up over the years and decades, right? But uh, everybody's got to do something, and that's what I've been doing. You know? so, but um, I, have a strange, I have a strange background, you know, I, I, I was uh, 
maybe uh, I'll come back another time and I'll, I'll tell you my testimony because it's an amazing story of God's miraculous power. How many of us know that God is alive and he does miracles now, right? And I believe part of what we're seeing him doing in this country is miraculous. First of all, he's allowed us to go through this hell for his sake because Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good for those that love the Lord and are called according to his purposes. So he's gonna let us you know, go through this stuff in part to wake up the holy remnant to stand and to understand what, it, what, it, what is happening. Um, and that's, that's part of why I wrote this book. But I, what I meant to say is I've written all these books, but I have never, ever felt called by God, compelled to write something the way I did this. Uh, I just say that bluntly to you. I, I just never have. And, and in fact, I was going to publish it myself, which I've never even done before, but I had this crazy idea that I've, got, I've just got to say this. The Lord wants me to say, just, just say this even just for church leaders, just to kind of get it out there. It's kind of cra- it was kind of a crazy thing where you just think like, Lord, is this you? And um, I, uh, I, I simply have never felt that before, that I had a, a message for the church. Every single book I wrote, and I recommend them all very highly <laughs> because I live in New York where the rent is high and the taxes are higher. I don't care if you read my books, okay? As long as you buy a few copies, I don't, I don't, I don't care. No, I, I joke around, but I say, you know, like, of course, you, you know, if I'm honest before God, I, of course I want everyone to buy and read my books. Why? Because I believe the Lord gave me what he has given me for his purposes, right? You know, to, to strengthen the church and to reach those beyond the church. And, and most, I mean, every book I've ever written, I write, I know that mostly it's going to be Christians that are going to buy the book, but my hope is they will give it to their non-Christian or nominal Christian neighbors and say, hey, what do you think of this? It's not the kind of book that, a, that, a, that a, a person, unless you're all in, that they would go like, well, this is not for me. It's one of those Christian books. You know, I, I try to, to speak to as wide an audience as possible, but not with this book. This book, which is the shortest book I've ever written, Bonhoeffer's the longest book, this is the shortest book I ever wrote, but I, I, I had a compulsion to speak to the church. In other words, to anybody who dares say, I'm a Christian. It's like, okay, then this is for you. This is what God wants to say. Um, but the, the original title of the book, and I'm not kidding because it's at the kind of heart of the message of the book, what, I was going to use the scripture verse as the title, Faith Without Works is Dead. Because that's, that's kind of when you see, what do they call it in the corporate world? Mission drift, right? Like, you know, you start out here and then something happens over time. And you think, what has happened to the American church that we would get this idea that you know we would so focus on faith or theology that we would forget like yeah that's nice but the devil's not scared by your like theology he's scared by if you live out your theology right and that's what god is impressed by and that's what the lord is looking for and so we've kind of developed this kind of like very very spoiled uh culture in America, because let's, we got to be honest, we have been blessed beyond belief, and unless you come from the other side, like my mom and dad, who came from Greece and Germany, which became East Germany, unless you come from a place that doesn't have everything that we have, we tend to think like, well, this is normal. This is not normal, what we have in the United States of America. This is a gift from God that we do not deserve, 
And when you understand what an amazing gift it is to be free, to, to govern yourself, to be able to be utterly Christian in your whole life, to have founding documents that say we have religious liberty and that the state has nothing to say about how you live your life and your faith and whatever. That's in the founding documents in our laws. This is extraordinary in the history of the world. And when you have that kind of a gift, you know, the tendency uh, is to say like, oh, okay, so this is normal. This is, we've always had this. Well, I'm here to tell you that the Lord, what he does to wake us up is he'll just take it away a little bit. And so you go, oh, what happened? We don't know. We, we had that all the time. Suddenly the government is being authoritarian. So suddenly this is happening. So to wake us up to, to what we have. And so I realized that part of what had happened in the church over time uh, is exactly, and I mean exactly, what happened in the German church as the Nazis rose in power in the 1930s. It's the exact same thing. And you tend to, we tend to kind of put the, the Germans and the Nazi situation like in a, in a separate basket. Like we go, oh yeah, that's kind of uniquely evil, crazy stuff. That could never happen here, right? Well, that's just not true. The Germans in the 30s, as Hitler was rising to power, they were exactly as complacent and comfortable as the American church is. Is that fighter jets? What is that? Huh? Is fighter jets? This is in my contract that at this point in the sermon, I, all right. All right, so far so good. We'll check that box. Uh, that's nice. I like that. I, like, I need that more. That's nice. That's like, that's, that's really, that's, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, well, so what I was saying was that in a way, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, now some of you know my Bonhoeffer book, you don't need to, whatever, because I kind of, that's the longest book, and I sum it up in the new book, Letter to the American Church, but basically Dietrich Bonhoeffer saw this error in the German church in the early 30s. He saw the Hitler, the, the, the Hitler and the Nazis rising to power, and he saw complacency on the part of the Germans, like, nah, it doesn't matter, it's not our thing, we're good, everything's fine. And he was trying to say to them, no, you're, you're not fine. And the reason you're not fine is because you're so used to everything being great that you can't even imagine things going to hell at the speed of light. You can't even imagine what can happen. And so that's arrogance, that's complacency, well, you call it what you will. But the warning of Dietrich Bonhoeffer to the German church, now again, you know, when we think of the Nazis and Hitler, whatever, we immediately go to the worst part of it. But imagine it's just 1932, 33, and you know, you, you kind of think, well, we don't know where this is gonna go. A lot of people are saying, well, this is nothing to be concerned about. You know, he's a one-term Fuhrer, don't worry about it. Like, it'll be fine. The pendulum swings back and forth. We're good, we'll be fine. No, that's stupid, that's wrong. That's not biblical. You look in scripture and the Lord allows unbelievably evil, terrible things to happen in his sovereignty, okay? The Babylonian captivity, right? That didn't last a year. He allows horrible things to happen. Now, God is sovereign, and, and again, Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good. The Lord will use the worst thing for his purposes if you give your whole heart and life over to him. But this idea that nothing bad could ever happen or whatever, that's where the Germans were 
in the early 30s. And Bonhoeffer was trying to say to them, like as a prophet, he didn't see himself as a prophet, but he was just trying to say to them, listen, if you, the church, do not wake up now and stand now and risk your life and reputation and job and whatever it is now, you won't get a chance. In a couple of years, it's, it's over. You have an opportunity now to arise and be the church of God because we're facing unique evil. And most German leaders in the early 30s just said, well, I, nah, I think he's, he's kind of a young intellectual hothead. He's just, he's exaggerating. Uh, and we're not, we're, not, we're not concerned. They gave all kinds of excuses for their silence. Some of you have heard the phrase, silence in the face of evil is itself evil. They were giving excuses for their silence. And the worst excuses are religious excuses, right? Theological excuses, where you'd say, well, the Bible just says uh, we're supposed to, it's all about evangelism. We're not supposed to talk about anything in the culture or anything in the government. We're not supposed to talk about that from the pulpit. We don't do that. That's not biblical, ladies and gentlemen. And by the way, if it's not biblical, it is from the pit of hell. But people, it's the mission drift. You kind of begin to accept these ideas, right? The Germans had a healthy history. The church and state, very friendly. The Kaiser was very pro-Christian and pro-church. Well, that's nice. Uh, until the leader of the state is Adolf Hitler. And suddenly you realize, wow, what that American idea of the separation of church and state, that might be a good thing to have because the church needs to be separate. The church bows to God alone, not to the state. So they have more of an excuse than we do for taking their eye off the ball and thinking like, well, how, how bad could it get? Well, Bonhoeffer was trying to wake them up. And again, they have all these theological excuses. I'll get to, to some of them uh, in, in the sermon in the next service. I'll, I'll talk about different examples because I don't want to repeat myself in case anybody uh, is here for both services. But I just want to say that the excuses they gave are so dramatically similar to the excuses American Christian leaders and pastors are giving today that I said, I have to write about this. And the reason I was going to title the book Faith Without Works is Dead is because that's kind of the central heresy, right? Where we take a good idea and we make an idol out of it, right? And, and, and how is the Satan gonna fool the church, right? He's not gonna get us all to be like, you know, crackhead murderers because he knows we're not gonna fall for that. We, we know, we don't know, that's wrong. What's he gonna do? He's gonna take some good thing and try to get us to make an idol of it. So what would, what would be a good thing that we would make an idol of? Well, how about evangelism, right? How about creating some doctrine that says we can only speak on gospel-related issues, okay? Well, you get a problem with that because Psalm 12, which we just heard, and tons of other places in scripture are not talking about gospel-related issues. They're saying things like, the poor are being crushed and the Lord will arise. And it's, it's our job to be a voice for those who are being crushed, whoever it is. When you see corruption, when you see evil, when you see lives being destroyed, when you see young people's lives being destroyed in schools, whatever, you better speak up because that's what the Lord cares about, okay? 
If the slave trade is happening and your economy is floating on the back of the slave trade, you're going to be like a Wilberforce. The Lord wants you to be like a Wilberforce to speak against it. But there were people in Wilberforce's day who said, no, 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 that's not a gospel-related issue. Just stick to your little theological stuff. Don't, don't, don't take your theology into all these other issues. That's the opposite of what God says. The Lord says, you take your theology, if it's worth anything, into every part of life. God doesn't say, you better stay in your lane. Stay in your little theological corner there where it's safe. Exactly the opposite. But you, have a lot of, you had a lot of Germans in that day saying, we, uh, we don't believe in, in uh, commenting on what's going on out there. We, we just want to, we're all about evangelism. Well, the Bible's not all about evangelism. Jesus is not all about evangelism, okay? So as great and important as that is, you better make sure that you speak up when the Lord calls you to speak and to call out evil, and, and here's the great irony, right? In other words, those pastors today and in that day, they're all worried about evangelism, worried about somebody might leave my church if I speak about something divisive. The irony is, first of all, of course, the Lord commands you to speak about those things and to be clear about what the Bible says. And are, are some people going to get offended? Probably. But the point is, God will be more offended if you keep your mouth shut because you're worried about those people who are going to be offended. That's number one. Now, here's the irony. The irony, and you see it because there's so many of you here at 9 a.m. in Monclova. I know you would have been in Monclova anyway, right? That's you just, this is just where you are. Ladies and gentlemen, the irony is that when you speak about these things that fearful pastors think, well, that's divisive, ironically, people are so hungry for truth that your numbers will increase. You will see evangelism. You'll see people that haven't been to church in years saying, well, I'll go to a church like that if they're actually not just blowing religious smoke and they're actually talking about things that affect my life and my kids' lives, my grandkids' lives. But if you're actually addressing that, yeah, we'll check that out. And that's what's been happening. And, I, and I've heard this story every, everywhere I go. It's exactly the same story as you're experiencing in this church. It's, I hear it over and over and over again. Because we were bold about this and other churches weren't, our numbers have doubled and tripled and we've got to you know, build new parking lots and stuff. I, I hear this over and over around the country. I was in Englewood, Colorado, a church I had never heard of, brave church in Englewood, Colorado. I was like, okay, they've invited me. That's kind of brave in this day and age because... You know, a lot of people want to cancel me because I'm, you know, talking about things you're not allowed to talk about. You know, if you care about what the communist overlords think at Google or whatever, you know, we don't talk about that, right? So I go to that church, and, I, and I, I hadn't heard of the church before. And the church was gigantic, and they had the exact same story. Our, trip, our, our, our giving has tripled, and our numbers have tripled, and we don't know, we got adding services and stuff. And I thought, think of the irony all those pastors that are worried they might lose a few tithers, they're keeping silent on this and this and this and this, and they are bleeding numbers. They are struggling to keep their doors open, and all the loudmouth nuts like us <laughs> who are actually crazy enough to bring what the Bible says into culture and politics and whatever, because we believe that we're supposed to do that, that's a biblical mandate, all those churches are growing. And I say this to give you hope, 
because I get to see this around the country. I see it here now, but I, I've seen it around the country that when you dare to do fearlessly what God has called you to do, the opposite happens of what all of the naysayers are warning about. They say, don't talk about those things because someone will be offended in your church. Well, probably it's God's will that that person be offended. And then it's between them and the Lord whether they come back and come to their senses. But the point is, faith without works is dead is something that Bonhoeffer was trying to tell the Germans in the 30s, we have erred on the side of faith in the sense that we all know, like evangelism, it's important. Faith, it's about faith, yes, yes. But how does the devil kind of get you to make this idol of faith, which is not biblical faith, right? Which, which, which implies that it's whatever's in your head and it's, it's, it's what you believe theologically that gets you saved, and that's all that matters. And you think, well, no, that's not biblical. If you are saved, you, you haven't crossed the finish line. You've just crossed the starting line. You are now going to live out your faith in every sphere of life, self-sacrificially, to God's glory, out of gratitude to him that he would give you salvation uh, by faith in him. And so then your whole life is a response to what you claim to believe. If you actually believe it, you respond and you live out your life in every part of your life. You live out what you claim to believe fearlessly. Why? Because you actually believe Jesus defeated death on the cross. So you don't even fear death. That's what it looks like to believe in the God of the scripture. And if you don't fear death, your life is gonna look real different than those who fear death and those who fear anything. You're gonna be truly free because he died to set us free. Free not to do what we want, free to do his will fearlessly. So Bonhoeffer was trying to get the German church to see this and they kind of said, no, no, not yet, not yet. Things aren't bad enough yet. Things aren't bad enough yet. So I realized that this is dramatically the situation in the American church. It has been, right? You have people going to all kinds of Bible studies and reading the Bible. You know, I hate to break it to you, but the Pharisees that, you know, wanted Jesus to die and conspired to murder him, they read the, they knew the Bible really well. It's not about reading the Bible. It's not about knowing the Bible. It's about living the Bible. It's about obeying what it says. And it would be better that you do not read the Bible than that you would read it and then not do what it says. Then you're reading the Bible unto your own destruction. It's there for you to live it out, not to know it in your head or to pretend to know you know it in your head, because if you're not living it out, then you don't know it in your head. So if you're saved by faith, but, you, but faith without works is dead, if there's no works, if you're not living it out, that's like a pretty big clue that you do not have that faith you think you have and that you are not saved. Do you ever think about that? What a scary thing. People say, well, that sounds like works righteousness. Yeah, it sounds like works righteousness, but it's not. We're not talking about getting saved by what you do, but we're talking about living out your faith because if you actually believe what the scripture says, you can't help but live out your faith. And so... 
We kind of got trapped in this, I don't know, I call it, it's like an enlightenment rationalist view of faith. It's like, it's what I believe intellectually, right? So somebody says, what do you believe? You say, well, uh, uh, you go to my church website and there's a statement of faith, I, that's what I believe. It's like, I, I don't think the devil is scared by that fig leaf. Uh, and God is not fooled by that fig leaf because how you live your life shows God and the devil and your friends and your enemies what you believe. And they can see what you believe by how you live your life. But we bought into this idea that, no, no, it's just what I believe intellectually. I don't, I don't, need, to, I don't need to bring that into politics. I don't want to get political. We all know we're not supposed to be political. And you think, no, that's, that's not biblical. That's not biblical. And you know, just to remind you, if it's not biblical, it's from the pit of hell. So this idea that we're not supposed to be political, what does that even mean? It's just not biblical. It's, it's preposterous. We're not supposed to make an idol of politics. Well, guess what? We're not supposed to make an idol of anything, right? I love my wife. I love my family. I love my daughter. But I'm not supposed to make an idol of that. I'm supposed to put God first. But imagine the idea says, well, you can't love your, don't love your wife and daughter and don't love your parents and don't do it because uh, you're just supposed to love God. That's, that's the devil talking, folks. You're, you're supposed to love both. Those loves inform each other. So this false choice... You're not supposed to love America. You're supposed to be, you're just a citizen of the kingdom. But, yeah, I'm a citizen of the kingdom, and I'm privileged to be a citizen of the United States also. And the Lord calls me to have my faith in him and my kingdom living inform my citizenship in America, where we are self-governing and obliged to live out our faith. Otherwise, the ship of state goes down. So, the devil's voice has come into our culture and has confused a lot of people, confused a lot of Christians. And they are not willing to stick their neck out. It's a lot safer to say, oh, well, we're just gonna be, we're not gonna, we're not gonna talk about that. But I just wanna remind you, I wrote a book about William Wilberforce called Amazing Grace. It's with the story of his battle. He comes to faith and leads the battle against the slave trade in the British Empire. It's because of his faith that he recognizes through scripture that slavery and the slave trade is a satanic abomination, that if he is any kind of Christian, he's going to do anything he can to abolish it. Now, a big part of that involved politics. And there were people in his day who said, no, 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 you shouldn't bring your politics and faith. You've got to keep them separate. Well, I'm here to tell you again, that's not biblical. That's nonsense. But there are a lot of pastors today, too. They say, well, look at the first century church. Well, I've got a problem with that, okay? Because there's a lot I can learn from the first century church, but I also have to keep in mind the first century church, they were not a self-governing free people. They didn't have the privilege to govern themselves and to bring their faith into the public square. We have been given that gift, and we have an obligation to take what we claim to believe into the public sphere. And whether that involves politics or getting involved in school boards, whatever it involves, the Lord calls us to take our faith out of the church and into all the world because we are the church, right? The church is not a building. The church is not a denomination. The church is we are the church. And we're to take what we believe out of this theological sphere and into every other sphere. And so we are living in a strange hour where we are seeing there's been this drift over time where we've become complacent as an American church. And I think most of you here, uh, you wouldn't be here if you were on board with this. But I'm telling you, a lot of churches and church leaders in America, they don't get this. And they're saying, just stay in your lane. 
Just speak to gospel-related issues. And I'm telling you, truth is a gospel-related issue, folks. All right? Jesus, Jesus said, you know, it would be better for you if you cause one of these little ones to stumble. It'd be better for you to have a millstone hung around your neck and you'd be cast into the sea. That would be better than what will happen to you. That doesn't sound very gospel-related, Jesus. Jesus was toxic. He didn't understand. He didn't understand that it's our job to be nice and just to agree with people. I got to tell you, we've got to preach a biblical message. And the biblical message is that when you see evil and corruption, and they, you call it out and you do everything you can because the Lord has called you to love the stranger who will be affected by all the wicked policies and things that are happening. It is up to those of us who say we are the church to do something about it. That's God's mandate. And out of that will come tons of evangelism. That's the irony. So I say all this because somehow, as I said, many Christian leaders have this idea that I'm not supposed to do that. I'm supposed to be apolitical. Well, even that, again, it's so crazy. It, it, it began in 1954 in, in the book letter to the American church. I kind of discuss how it was Lyndon Baines Johnson, LBJ, one of the most corrupt politicians in the history of the United States of America, in case you're tracking at home, in case, in case anybody wants to know, unbelievably corrupt kind of monster of, of a carnal, you know. He, in 1954, long before he became president, um, he didn't like what the churches were saying about him and stuff. So he said, okay, we'll fix them. We'll say, uh, if you get political in church or whatever, we'll repeal your tax-exempt status, right? So he puts this into the IRS code. And this is one of these moments in our history where the churches should have raised heck over that issue. You want to talk about an issue that it's like, we're going to die on this hill? You're like, you're, you're going to do what? Like, you, who do you think you are, Linda Baines Johnson? Who do you think you are, U.S. government, to dare to tell me what I can and cannot say as, as an American, as a Christian? But a lot of people just said, okay, we'll go along with that. And so this kind of leaked into the, to the body of Christ over the decades so that many of us kind of took this idea in that we're not supposed to be political. We're not supposed to be political. We're not supposed to be, and, I, and again, I want to say to you, what does that even mean? If there is evil and I call it out, people who don't like what I'm saying, they're going to say, you're being political. And that's all it takes to shut up tons and tons of pastors in this country. And I wrote this book because I said, this is not biblical. And we need to understand, the, I, I wrote the book in a sense to give the biblical underpinning of, of, of what I'm saying. This is not just my opinion. Uh, you know, this is just not because I'm some kind of MAGA nut who wants to bring, you know, my, my, my idolization of something into the church. No, just the opposite. It's what does the scripture say? And again, the reason I wrote the book is because the example of what happened to the German church is so chilling. They were silent in the face of evil just long enough that the Nazis were able to gain power. If the church had spoken up in 33 and 34 when Bonhoeffer was begging them to arise and to make their voices known, if they had understood it biblically and stood and spoke and, and, spoke and, and, and had lived out their faith, the church had the power in Germany 
to stand against the National Socialists. I mean, that's an amazing thing, that, the, that it was such a Christian country, they had such cultural power in the church, but they said, nah, not yet, not yet. And I always think of the image of Gulliver being tied down by the, the Lilliputians, right? Gulliver is asleep. If the church is asleep, that's what the Nazis wanted to do. They thought, we don't want to wake up the church. We don't want to tell them where we're coming from, that like we worship Satan. We're not going to mention that in any of our speeches. We're going to pretend we're kind of on board with morality and this and that. And we're going to, we want them to just keep sleeping as we do these things over the weeks and months and create more and more laws and more and more laws. And it's exactly like the Lilliputians tying down Gulliver. If Gulliver had woken up at any point, he would have crushed them. But they said, if he just keeps sleeping, we'll just tie him down with these little ropes, these tiny ropes, he could rip them up. But if we get him tied up enough, eventually when he wakes up, it's too late. That's the devil's goal. He's not gonna announce his evil plan. Hitler was not gonna announce his evil plan. He just thought, well, just keep the church sleeping, keep the pastors, the meek pastors, the fearful pastors, we'll just keep them silent. And if we keep them silent just long enough, when they finally wake up to what we're doing, it will be too late. Now, the reason I wrote this book is because that is exactly what happened in Germany. The example of what happened because of the silence and inaction of the church is as gruesome as it gets. It is a nightmare, an historical nightmare of what happened into this great nation. Germany was a great nation, the nation of Martin Luther and Goethe and Schiller and Bach and on and on and on. This was a great nation suffused with Christianity, but when it came time to be the church self-sacrificially, heroically, they balked. And the result was, as I said, like a nightmare that no one could have seen it coming. So when we look back and we blame them and we say, oh, they, they should have seen it coming, they say, well, yes, they should have. But the question is, you say, how did it happen? How did that happen? And over the last couple of years, I, I realized, I've been saying, it happened exactly as it is happening in the United States of America now. The silence of good people for all their little reasons, that's exactly how it happened. And I believe the Lord called me to write my Bonhoeffer book and this book as a way of saying, here is what happened when they did what you are doing now. And if you do not repent and change, this is exactly what will happen to you and already is happening, let's be honest. Unless you repent, this is what will happen to you. In fact, just as they couldn't imagine how bad it could be, you cannot imagine what would happen because you don't even have that excuse in this country because you have the, excuse, you have the example of what happened to the German church as a warning and you have a tradition and laws of separation of church and state, you have infinitely less excuse than they did for their silence. And so I realized that it's not the Lord's will that America go the way of Germany because, because of their silence, not only did it unleash hell on earth and cause innumerable human beings to be crushed and suffer, 
for which the church blame for which Jesus blames the church, right? He looks to us. We claim to believe all this stuff. He defeated death on the cross, and we're so we are his hands and feet on planet Earth. He looked to us, and they failed in Germany, and we saw what happened, and it, it affected innumerable people. And the Lord lays that suffering and death at the foot of his church, his faithless church. And so we have this example, and today we're living this out, which is why I wrote this book, is to say that I, I believe it's the Lord's will that a holy remnant arise and stand against this. Now, just so you understand of what's at stake, um, I get very encouraged when I see a church like this. God is moving. What's happening in Asbury, there are things, there's all kinds of, a lot of things coming out in the news that you weren't even able to talk about a year or two ago are coming out and coming out and coming out. So I have hope. But I also know that we're just in the beginning of a war. We're, in, we're at war. Now, if the Lord calls you to the battle, you praise him. You say, thank you, Lord, that you allow me to be alive at a time when what I do and say matters for your name's sake. And that is where we are right now. We're there now. But to give you an example... And I'll close with this, but there's a chapter in the book called 12,000 Pastors. And I'll never forget it when I discovered this. In Germany, as the Nazis were rising, right away in 1933, Bonhoeffer and a number of others recognized, okay, we got a problem. We've got a problem because the Nazis are trying to import totally unbiblical racial ideology into all of German life. And it's our job to stand against this because this is to say it's not biblical is putting it mildly but even more pointedly the nazis were trying to actually take over the german church they wanted to make a reichskirche a state church in line with national socialist thinking now you know that's not possible but you also know that there are a lot of people that you know they're willing to look the other way well bonhoeffer and others said we can't look the other way so they create this thing called the barman declaration and the Barman Declaration basically said, we are obedient and faithful to God alone, not to the state. It was a very bold declaration. And about 6,000 of those 18,000 pastors signed it. And the problem was that the Nazis doing exactly what you see, you know, the globalists, big tech, big pharma, whatever it is, the powers that be for the, whatever reasons, for greed or whatever it is, they, they did a full court press on silencing their opposition, on trying to crush the opposition. And you're, you're seeing this now, right? Like, you know, you'll get, I, my, my entire radio show was wiped off of YouTube. It's, I just thought, what, what world am I living in? This is like Soviet Russia. What world am I living in that my radio show would be wiped off of YouTube? Huge, huge hit financially in every other way. Well, because the other side is really desperate not to let the truth out, not to let there be a civil debate, because we don't want that kind of America anymore. We want to control information, right? So the Nazis did just that. So from 33 to 35, they just tried to crush the church. It's like, you want to be a brave pastor? We'll crush you. So by 1935, only about half of the 6,000 that signed the Barman Declaration were standing strong. We're saying we will stand. We believe with the word of God and we stand on the word of God. 
So out of 18,000 pastors in Germany, 3,000 stood strong by 1935. On the other end of the spectrum, you had 3,000 totally pro-Nazi, you know, it would be like kind of like the woke churches or like, you know, they're just all in for whatever it is, you know. But the key is 3,000 heroes, 3,000 supervillains. In the middle, 12,000 German pastors unwilling to choose, thinking we're going to take the safe religious path. We're just going to stand here in the middle. We're going to see which way the wind blows. We don't want to stick our neck out. We don't want to get canceled. We don't want to get in trouble. We're going to hedge our bets. How do you think the Lord looks at you if you say, well, I'm going to hedge my bets. I could lose my job. I could lose this. I, could do I, don't, I don't know if I want to trust God on that. Well, that's the moment of reckoning. The Lord says, I know what you believe by your actions. And you have fooled yourself into thinking, I can take a safe third way, a, a, a religious safe path. I'm going to be nice. I'm going to do what I'm told. I'm not going to speak about this or this or this or this or this. I don't want to be divisive. And those 12,000 pastors in the middle determined by their inaction and by their obviously fake religious stance, right? They said, this, we're, just, we're just being nice Christians. They enabled evil to triumph. They enabled satanic evil to triumph. And the Lord points his finger at them and says, you claim to believe in me and I see by your actions that you don't believe in me. Not when the chips are down. When everything's great, but when the chips are down, when I require something of you, as I require of my church all through history, people who've died for their faith, you don't want to have that kind of a faith. You want to have a safe, comfortable faith. And I've called you to stand. And so I realized that it's the 12,000 who did nothing that the Lord looks to them. And, you know, you don't need all 12,000 to wake up because that'll never happen. But if some of them, if some of them had said, it's time to take a stand, if 3,000 more had taken a stand, it could have tipped things over. And I'm here to tell you that is exactly where we are in the American church. There are many voices in the American church today that would tell you exactly the opposite of what I'm telling you. It scares me. It chills me that they're advocating silence they're advocating, don't be political. None of that's biblical. It's, it's completely confused and messed up, but it's a very comforting message, right? It's a comforting message. Be nice. Be nice. Don't, don't, go, don't be radical. Don't be divisive. Uh, your, your church will just explode with people who are really interested uh, in hearing nothing, you know, of substance on a Sunday morning. The Lord calls his people to be all in. And we are at that tipping point right now. And I have hope because I don't believe the Lord would have called me to write this book. Uh, like I was saying before, this is, this is not like a career move. I got a great idea for a book. No. I believe the Lord wants to wake up his church because he has things planned for us and for this nation. You and I know he is the only answer 
to the nightmares unfolding around the world and in this country. You know that's true. And if, and if the church will be the church, everything changes. If the church will be the church, everything changes. And so because we see what happened in Germany, how clear it is what happened when they did nothing, what happened, we have that example. I believe that's the Lord's mercy to us, folks. I believe it's his mercy to say, I've given you the clearest example there is. This is exactly what will happen to you. This is exactly happening to you now. These are the same excuses given then. But because you see it, or because some of you will see it, it doesn't need to happen. But you need to be all in. You need to live fearlessly. You need to take your faith, if you have faith, you need to take your faith into every part of life and be led by my Holy Spirit, and you will see what I will do. And unless you live that way, leaning into God, depending on God to do the miraculous and to be with you, you won't see God. God says, you want to have it your way? You can have it your way. That's what's scary. He lets us have it our way if we want to have it our way. But if you say, Lord, thy will be done, he says, I can use you. I really believe we're on the cusp of something in this nation that is the answer to many of our prayers over the decades. But we're at an inflection point, and if the church will be the church, we will see God move, we will see revival and reformation, and we will see what we believe make its way into the culture in a way that it's been making its way out of the culture for the last 50 years, I think we will see that. But it's up to the church to be the church. So church, that's you, that's me. By God's grace and for his glory, let's do it. God bless you. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you'd like to take a next step with Redemption Church, visit us online at experienceredemption.com slash connectcard. You can also give online to support the work of Redemption Church. To explore your giving options, visit experienceredemption.com slash give online. We hope that the message you heard today encouraged you. See you again soon.